Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Yes, OK, Transport in the Low Carbon Age. Uh, this is the official title, but I usually put a subtitle in when I give this because um, what I'm about to say might be unfashionable for a lot of people. Uh, but I think it's born of a degree of pragmatism, having worked in the industry for a while uh, and understanding uh, around what is feasible and what's not feasible. Um, before I start, I, uh, I need to just acknowledge uh, an ex-colleague of mine, Richard Pearson, with whom I worked on this subject for many years and have co-authored a lot of papers. So uh, some, at least, of what is said in here uh, has its roots in his thinking. Uh, he's a visiting professor here at Bath. Uh, I will own up to doing what I tell my students not to do, and that is don't make any changes just before you give a presentation. Uh, having said that, uh, I can't wait to hear what I've got to say. Okay, I put some quotations in here um, in order to make it more interesting, or perhaps just interesting. Um, so the first one I'm going to give and, uh, is from Winston Churchill, good place to start. I didn't have time to write a short speech, so I've written a long one instead. So I do apologise if anybody's on a metre at the moment, but this is quite a lengthy presentation. Now, before I get stuck into the meat of this, there is a behemoth in the room. Elephant is not a big enough word, and that is Volkswagen. There can't be anyone in the room, I guess, who hasn't heard of the Volkswagen emissions scandal uh, and the repercussions that that has had through the motor industry. Um, I will not, as such, say anything about, in detail about air quality. I will say a couple of things, but this presentation is not about air quality. It's about trying to uh, form a sustainable future for transportation. And I'm not trying to belittle in any way the air quality issues, but some of what I say uh, is born of experience uh, with regards to where we can get to uh, in air quality. So, this wouldn't be an engineering lecture without some thermodynamics. Um, this is the only bit of thermodynamics before you get too worried about it, but the thermodynamic laws of thermodynamics are immutable. And the first law of thermodynamics is very, very important. Energy cannot be created, neither by presidential initiatives, majority votes of parliament, decisions of committees, political parties, power plants, utilities, or oil companies. It can only be converted from one state to another. So it doesn't matter to a very large extent on a physical level what any politician says. If it's not actually thermodynamically possible to do these things, uh, then we're not going to be able to do them. But we have to remember that. And with that background, this is all about energy and, to some extent, power, and then some economics. So the internal combustion engine has created modern life. So obviously, I'm an automotive engineer from my background. Uh, when I say the car, it's pretty much interchangeable with the internal combustion engine. And that's because the internal combustion engine made the car possible. So most modern transportation, with the exception of steam, obviously, many great things done with steam, with locomotives and steamships, etc. but most modern transportation has been enabled by the internal combustion engine. It's effectively built the modern world. I'm including gas turbines with normal um, engines in this because they are internal combustion engines. But it has essentially built the modern world. Now, staggering statistic, 95 million cars were made in 2016. If you average that throughout the year, we build three cars every second, more than that this year. And every single one of those has a buyer. 
And that is quite an amazing economic fact, that we just keep building them and people keep buying them. <coughs> we will have built 2 billion cars by 2022. And by that date, all of the people on Earth could have a seat in one of the cars or commercial vehicles that has been built. I am incredibly proud to be a mechanical engineer. I view the automobile and, civil, and commercial vehicles as being the crowning achievement of what we do. It may not be quite uh, as fashionable with other people, but nevertheless, to be able to build that many vehicles, that many complex creations, and sell them entirely funded by personal capital is an incredible achievement. It's the car's cost-to-utility ratio that has enabled all of this. Historically, it's been entirely funded by private capital. It offers something fantastic to the person that buys it for the cost that you sell it to them. And the air quality bit. There are no emissions targets in existence or planned which cannot be met by the internal combustion engine. Now, Volkswagen cheated. That's not to say that we can't meet, as an industry, the targets. You will note that no one else has been caught. Um, modern spark ignition engines, petrol engines, I will also use the phrase gasoline, so uh, I can't help that. Um, but modern spark ignition engines, actually, there's plenty of data to show that in the dirtiest cities, they clean the air because they have catalytic converters on the back and the emission standards that they're built to are so high that the stuff coming out the tailpipe in places like Beijing is actually cleaner in terms of hydrocarbons, carbon monoxide, etc. The profits of the oil companies easily exceed that of the car OEMs. Now, I'm not, as I said, I'm an automotive engineer. We use acronyms all over the place, and I'm sorry if I don't explain all of them. But OEMs is Original Equipment Manufacturers. That is the car companies, essentially. So I will use that phrase quite a bit. But what this means is that if you really want to make money out of this system, you sell fuel, and that is because it's a grudge purchase. If you need to make a journey, you need the energy in the vehicle. If your tank is empty, you have to go and buy some. Similarly, you might want to have a more environmentally friendly vehicle, but if you can't afford it, then you can put it off for a while. But if you need to make the journey, you need the fuel now. So we need to remember that with regards to what I'm going to say later on. So, sustainability. So, in considering future transport, we need to consider sustainability. So, it's a word that's bandied around a lot. What's the definition? Well, unsurprisingly, there is one, and this is a definition from the UN. So, sustainable development is development that meets the needs of the present generations without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own need. That is the definition by the UN of sustainability. Internal combustion engines are made with relatively low energy processes from abundant and easily recyclable uh, materials. But they are operated at present on a finite resource. So they are sustainable in manufacture, but are not sustainable in use. Okay. Batteries and other EV components, such as traction motors, etc., are made from rare and difficult to obtain materials that are not easily recyclable. And they're operate, but they're operated on electricity. So they are a counterpoint because they are not sustainable in manufacture, but they are sustainable, they could be sustainable in use. So if you look at those two things, you might deduce that 
arguably a panacea would be to operate the internal combustion engine on electricity, if we could do such a thing. But that would be the ideal from those two statements. Right, personal transportation, which is what this is all about, of course. So the incumbent technology. Some people might think this is not quite true, but it actually, in, it, relative to other things, personal transportation is really cheap. You can go and buy a very good quality car for not much more than you can go and buy a Swiss watch. Uh, and one of those things will be thought of as being a quality item, the other will be thought of as being cheap. Um, but nevertheless, it does mean, if you take it, think of it like that, personal transportation and the cost of it is actually very cheap. Why is that? Well, it's because of the internal combustion engine, and it's become the dominant prime mover for transport because, as I said earlier, it's made from abundant materials using simple processes. And it uses a cheap energy storage system. Furthermore, the energy supply and distribution system, so I know this is fossil fuels, but nevertheless, the energy supply and distribution system is efficient in terms of energy density, how much energy we have at any one point in it, the energy transfer rate, how fast we can move that, and there'll be some statistics on that in a minute. And because they're liquids, essentially there are minimal losses in transportation. And those things, you put them all together, it means that it's very cost-effective uh, transportation as we have it at the moment. And my observation on all of this, almost by definition, a silver bullet, because people are talking about trying to find a silver bullet to repair the problems that we have at the moment, almost by definition, a silver bullet cannot be replaced by one solution. Unfortunately, the internal combustion engine has always been a silver bullet. That is why it is so dominant on the world now. And I think people lose sight of that, because it is so ubiquitous but it is actually the silver bullet in transportation. We may not like the results of what it does, but it is true. So, back to the incumbent technology. If we try and move away from any of those factors that make um, the cost-utility ratio uh, of the internal combustion engine um, worse, it will incur a significant risk to the economic model, i.e. how we fund everything, which is essentially by private capital. That economic model is very mature. We've been getting to where we are at the moment by 130 years and has actually evolved with no governmental stimuli. And it's known to work for all of the stakeholders involved. The manufacturers, the government, the fuel supply companies and the consumers. That leads to an inconvenient truth. Consumers have to be able to afford transportation since they are the only financial input into the system. All of the other stakeholders take the money out. So if the consumer can't afford cars, transportation in the future, we've got a major problem. It doesn't, this is why governments will not keep funding electric cars forever. Because they are not used to having to pay private individuals or subsidise private individuals for the purchase of vehicles or operation of vehicles. But we have to change because of the climatic impact. There's obviously environmental impact from burning fossil fuels. Rising averages are linked to anthropogenic CO2 emissions. And if we carry on as we are at the moment, we could produce CO2 levels of 1,000 parts per million by 2100. So this is a graph of ice core data. Uh, this is years before present, not years British Petroleum, years before present. 
um, CO2 parts per million and degrees centigrade. And you can see that the uh, CO2 in the atmosphere uh, is, uh, reflects with a, uh, a, a change in the uh, atmospheric temperature as well. So if we go to 1,000 parts per million, which is way off the top of this graph, who knows where we're going to get to in terms of temperature increase because we are outside the bounds of what we have any data for. We are actually outside the bounds of what we've measured before at the moment, uh, which is a rather uncomfortable realisation. UN figures show that in 2015, the atmospheric CO2 concentration was 400 exactly, 400 parts per million. That's 0.04%. In 2016, it was 403.3 parts per million. So, yes, people will notice that has gone up. Of more import is the fact that you've had two years at 400 parts per million, and that is the beginning of a trend. Uh, we're not going to go back down quickly from that. So, poking the climate beast. I will point out an irony in this. Whenever people talk about CO2 and climate change, they usually show stacks from... Um, from uh, chimneys quite rightly but of course the thing you can actually see is water vapor you can't see the co2 perhaps if co2 is a horrible sludgy brown color we might have done something about it by now uh, but you can't see the co2 come out it's an invisible gas but in order to give ourselves some idea of how much co2 we emit on a personal level if i burn a liter of gasoline i produce about 2.3 kilograms of co2 and uh, just over a kilogram of water so, spot quiz to the engineering students in the room. Where does the other mass come from? Come on, come on. Don't let me down. Where's the other mass come from? Oxygen in the air. Yes, of course. Yes, I heard it from over here as well. So, we don't have to carry the oxygen with us with an internal combustion engine in the atmosphere. I'll come back to that point later on. If I burn 60 litres, so that's a large fuel tank, but nevertheless, if I burn 60 litres or 44 kilograms of gasoline, that will produce 138 kilograms of CO2. Therefore, 10 tankfuls of fuel produce the approximate mass of the car in CO2. So easily throughout a year, you will emit more than the mass of the car in CO2, personally. If we liquefied the current total annual CO2 fossil emissions, which were 36, nearly 36 gigatons in 2014, it would occupy a volume equivalent to a cube of two mile sides. That's liquid CO2. And we chuck that, that CO2 into the atmosphere every year. Uh, we keep talking about reducing it, but of course, we never really uh, seem to get very far with that. So transport and energy, the scale of the problem. Motivating factors, energy security. So, this is quite an interesting quote that I came across. Gasoline is the byproduct of a geographically limited and monopolistically controlled industry. And there are reasons to believe that the available supply is more than mortgaged by worldwide and growing demand. This came from an SAE paper, number 070002. And for the automotive people in the room, they will already have realized when this was written. This was written in 1907. And that means we haven't really come very far on that front because we're still worried about oil running out. We keep finding stuff, but we've been worried about it since we first made cars run on fossil oil. So, I'm not going to give a test on this, but this is just to give you a feel for how much oil we ship around the world in a year. So this is for 2014. And you can see that 
Uh, well, what have we got? We've got this route here. There's 32, 32 million tonnes of oil went round this route here. You can see it goes across the Atlantic. It goes all the way. Russia, Africa, all over the shop. We're totally used to moving oil around, but we move a lot of it around. Uh, and, of course, it is liquid energy, effectively. I'll just put that up to, uh, to uh, illustrate the magnitude of what we move around and also, with that, the ease with which we move it around because, obviously, it's all funded by uh, demand uh, and the price that we sell it at. But if I now flick back to the UK uh, and look at road transport in the UK by the type of vehicle, so this is a plot of a million tonnes of fuel that have been consumed uh, against year for different things. So we've got cars, we've got heavy goods vehicles, light goods vehicles, buses, and then motorcycles consume a little bit along the bottom. This is why nobody worries about motorcycle CO2 emissions, uh, because they don't use very much. But buses do, really. So if, you know, if we, it's worth trying to improve bus, um, uh, bus CO2, uh, and certainly HGVs, because the total of this is about 40 million tonnes of oil equivalent uh, that gets used, of 40 million tonnes of fuel. This is quite interesting because this is where the EU started to raise actual legislation on the car manufacturers. I've got another slide later on um, which will show some trends. But uh, I know we had the uh, global economic crisis at this point, but you can definitely see that the EU legislation that got raised probably started to have an effect in terms of reducing the amount of uh, oil that was used by cars. So if we want to solve this, simple. I'll be a politician for a minute. Let's electrify the transport fleet. Consumption of road transport is only 40 million tonnes of oil equivalent. Couldn't be easier, could it? Right, 1 million tonnes of oil equivalent. 1 million tonnes of oil equivalent. Well, that doesn't sound like very much, is it? It's, it, it's only one, isn't it? Well, 1 million tonnes of oil equivalent is nearly 42 petajoules. Uh, so when you, when you see this written down, the first thing you do is open Wikipedia and work out how many joules of energy that is. And this is 10 to the 15 petajoule is 10 to the 15 joules, which is a huge amount. Uh, over one year, one million tonnes of oil is an, a continuous output, continuous output of 1.33 gigawatts. So I'm going to call that a gigawatt year. Uh, I don't approve in the slightest of uh, the electrical engineers continually referring to batteries in terms of kilowatt hours. A kilowatt hour is not a standard uh, unit of energy. A joule is a unit of energy. So if they can get away with kilowatt hours, I'm going to invent a much bigger unit, the gigawatt year. So one million tonnes of oil is about 1.78 million horsepower years. So it's about 1,000 grids worth of Formula One cars going flat out for the entire year. They would use one million tonnes of oil. Being less flippant, a good-sized nuclear power station is about one gigawatt output. So that is only three quarters of a million tonnes of oil equivalent. So if it went all through the year at its maximum output, it would not reach one million tonnes of oil equivalent. The total design power of the two Hinkley Point C reactors is 3.2 uh, gigawatts. They're actually very big. And the agreed price of the station is 24.5 billion. So that works out to be 7.7 .7 billion per gigawatt. And I'll come back to that in a minute. So I don't know whether you can see that at the back, but if we electrify the fleet, how many more nuclear reactors would we need? Now, at this point, anyone can stand up and say, well, what about the efficiency difference between internal combustion engines and electric vehicles? I'm not going to try and defend what I'm about to say, other than to say I'm using units of energy, and I'm just trying to make people aware of the scale of the problem. 
So, here we've got the road, air, rail, water, broken down for 2014, and this has come from um, DEC. That is 53 one gigawatt nuclear power stations. I've got someone trying to break in here. Yeah. Usually people try and get out. So that's 53 one gigawatt nuclear power stations. That, for air, is 17 one gigawatt nuclear power stations throughout the year. Or, in units of Hinkley Point Cs, 16.5 for road transport at a cost of £408 billion if we were to use what the government has agreed uh, to pay for Hinkley Point C. Air is 5.3 Hinkley Point Cs or £131 billion. Now, for some perspective, in 2014, the average UK electrical power demand, the average UK electrical power demand was only 34.4 gigawatts. So much less than road transport uh, and, less, uh, and, and air combined. Or only half the total transport demand. So that was the average power transmitted by the electricity grid. Peak demand in 2015 was 52.7 gigawatts. So the peak demand was about equal to the usage in transportation, the average usage in transportation. So, to date, the only practical energy system for transport has been fossil, fossil oil because of the energy density and the ease with which we can get at it. And because we developed the fuel supply together with transportation, fossil oil has developed symbiotically with it. To the point where, by my reckoning, I think we pump oil at a rate equivalent to 7.4% of the flow of Niagara Falls, continually. That is the rate at which we use oil, the average rate. We burn it, put it into the atmosphere. So, the reason for all of saying all of this, when people say that we've changed energy supply, energy carrier before, from peat to coal to oil, We've always done that when we haven't been using much energy. We now use a vast amount of energy, far, far more than we did the last time we switched the energy carrier. Uh, so we have a major challenge on our hands. So decarbonising transport, what's the legislation raised on the car manufacturers? So in Europe, CO2 is currently the strongest vehicle technology driver. Globally, transport accounts for about a quarter of the global anthropogenic CO2 emissions. This is just some data that shows that in California it's actually about 38%. Um, in the US, about 28%. Worldwide, 23%. EU, 21%. And about half of that uh, is from passenger cars in the EU. So about 10% of Europe's CO2 emissions come from the passenger car fleet. Generally, transportation sector is particularly difficult to decarbonise because there are a large number of mobile emitters and that's very much unlike power stations or factories which aren't very mobile in comparison. There's 97% dependency on oil in transportation. There is a very high rate of growth globally in transportation as well. So all of these factors are going against you with regards to the ease with which you could decarbonise. So I said I'd have some more data about the achievements of the car manufacturers. So this is the average tailpipe CO2 uh, for output in grams per kilometre for the EU transport fleet. Um, <clears throat> so what we can see here 
is the, uh, the way that the manufacturers did manage to bring it down. There was a voluntary target in 2008. The EU said you really should try and do this um, and essentially left the manufacturers to get on with it. And surprisingly enough, the manufacturers missed that target. At that point, the EU said, right, we are going to have some legislation. So 2012, they said you had to hit 130 grams per kilometre of CO2 average for the cars that you sell. So over that period, from 2000 to 2015, actually, we did manage to get CO2 emissions from cars, on an average, down quite significantly, 30% down, actually. But over the 10-year period, 2004 to 14, the average mass and power output of a car increased by 2 and 13% respectively. The one attribute that a car has that people will pay more for is power. They will not pay more for fuel economy. And I should say that CO2 emissions are linearly related to fuel economy. For the manufacturers, the penalties at this point are notionally 95 euros per gram of CO2 per kilometre for every gram of CO2 per kilometre over the target for fleet average emissions. Now, that's quite a lengthy statement. Uh, what that means is, in this sense, in the automotive sense, CO2 is really expensive. It's significantly more expensive than platinum, actually. Platinum is about 27 euros per gram. Now, it's not exactly the same comparison, but nevertheless, it tends to set the scene for the value that the, CO, that the manufacturers now associate with improving CO2 from their vehicles. Now, the industry, and this is the target for 2020, thinks probably this is the limit for conventional technology, 95 grams of CO2 per kilometre. To go further than that requires a decarbonised fuel or energy carrier, or at least one where the CO2 emissions are not counted as belonging to the vehicles. Okay, so what's the likely OEM response to all of this? So this is some data from a technical paper written by uh, Freilich, BMW director, and presented at the 2016 Aachen Colloquium. Uh, and this shows a sort of general trend of what were called plug-in hybrid electric vehicles, PHEVs, going up, and battery electric vehicles having to go up as well. So because of the effect of averaging the fleet, OEMs will have to sell high proportions of zero tailpipe CO2 emissions. That sounds really good. Until you so, But this is the necessary customer demand for the OEM. Okay? In order for the OEM to comply with their targets, they have this requirement that the customers buy these things. Unfortunately, when you walk into a BMW dealership or anywhere else, the, the, the OEM at the moment cannot tell you which car you can and can't buy. And we all want great big SUVs, which are really consumptive. So there's some really horrible things going on that, out there in terms of all the sales and the way that it's looking for this year. Bit of a spoiler alert, it looks like for the first time ever, the CO2 emissions of the fleet for a few of the manufacturers have actually gone up because people are buying too many SUVs. So question to the room, are we shortly going to find a point where BMW say, right, we're only going to make so many X5s, first come, first served on the 1st of January? We may well have to get to that, and you could argue that that might be a good thing in terms of reducing CO2 from transport. 
So with the higher fine value associated with higher CO2 emissions for conventional vehicles, actually the conventional vehicles are likely to get more expensive as well because they're having to cover off the fines for the whole fleet. So it may well be a case of you've never had it so good in terms of, um, in terms of cars at the moment. Now, my observation on equitable responsibility. Vehicle OEMs are being tasked with nearly all of the responsibility for decarbonising transport, despite the fact that they do not profit from the sale of the carbon that is emitted. So when you buy a car, there is no CO2 tank on the roof that you are told to turn the tap on as you drive along. You are not supplied with the CO2 that gets emitted by that car. The carbon comes from the fuel. The fuel companies profit from the sale of the carbon that goes into the atmosphere, not the car manufacturer. And that, to me, seems iniquitous. In absolutely no way does it align with the maxim the polluter pays. And I'm not saying that the OEM should not be tasked with improving the energetic efficiency of their products. Because at the end of the day, it's energy that moves cars. The CO2 associated with that energy is in the fuel not in the car. So fuel companies, by comparison, have disproportionately... Anybody from a fuel company in the room, by the way? <laughs> have disproportionately easy legislation raised on them to de uh, decarbonise their product. And that's despite, as I said earlier on, the fuel companies make massively more profit than the car companies. The smallest energy, uh, oil major makes about four times the profit of Toyota the smallest oil major. And that's despite, obviously, they sell the fuel, and it's a massive profit generator for them. Now, of course, our pensions are tied up with BP and people like that, so this is a headache for the government as well. But we do need to produce an evolutionary route to decarbonise the fuel we operate vehicles on. Essentially, the, the panacea would be that we leave the fossil oil in the ground and call it unburnable carbon, and that phrase is used stuff we dare not burn, despite the fact that it contains a lot of energy. So what are the proposed alternatives to fossil fuels? Electricity and hydrogen. So of course I'm going to look into the future here, and this is going to make me think of a phrase uh, quote by Niels Bohr, prediction is very difficult, especially if it's about the future. <laughs> so there are three pathways to renewable transport, electricity, hydrogen, biofuels. Those two are classed as zero emission for the manufacturer. That one has no allowance for the recycling of the CO2 in the, in the uh, CO2 cycle of the, of the plant, of the crops, if you like. So they can make no benefit, no financial benefit, of making their cars run on a renewable fuel. No benefit at all. So as you can tell, they tend to look much more at this because of the policy drivers. Uh, electrification has an infrastructure problem as well. We talked about all the power that we'd have to provide, but generally electricity, and you know, I'm a mechanical engineer, so you could say I would say something like this, but electricity is a fantastic way of transmitting power, but a terrible way of storing energy. Mechanical mechanisms and storing the energy in chemical bonds are far, far more energy dense than any electrical storage system, and I'll return to that. But with a dedicated infrastructure, this sensibly might cross from rail to road for some modes. So here's a classic example, Shinkansen. It's a, uh, a bullet train, and it picks up its power from the grid. It does not have to carry the energy with it. 
It picks it up from the infrastructure. And I was once at a conference once when somebody used this example, uh, this, this, this example as, as, as a fantastic reason why we should be doing electric cars. But actually, no, because you've got to carry the electricity with you. You've got to carry the energy with you with an electric car. With a train, with a pantograph, you don't have to. People are looking at this. <clears throat> There's an experiment in Sweden called the electric highway. This looks fantastic. And if it stops people, if it stops the trucks from pulling out and stopping me on dual carriageways, I'm all for that. But I do have to, I do have to give you some words of warning here. This is about a kilometre long. It's only a test track at the moment, but it's being quite seriously looked at. <clears throat> it's a nice idea. Uh, whether we ever get to cars, of course, will be very different, although there are some cars which do use overhead pickups. Uh, <laughs> anyhow. Right, onboard energy density storage, uh, the density of energy storage. So this is a plot <clears throat> of the volumetric energy storage, energy density storage, uh, taking into account the volume of the tank or the battery, or the, whatever it might be. So this is the volume that it occupies, <clears throat> and this is the amount that you can store per kilogram of the storage system when it's full. And what you can see here, unfortunately, compared to liquid fuels, batteries don't really get off the origin. And that is because, to an extent, batteries have to carry their oxidant with them only to an extent, but that is nevertheless the case. The fact that they have to be very heavy makes them expensive. So they have to be large, massive, and that makes them expensive, even if we could make them very cheap, and I'll come back to that in a per kilogram sense. I'll come back to that later on. Hydrogen, uh, either liquid or at 700 bar, which is the storage pressure that the industry is looking at for hydrogen vehicles. Hydrogen's about a factor of 10, better than a battery in terms of energy storage. I'm going to put a rider on that. That's at automotive scale. I'll come to that, back to that in a minute. Aviation really needs to be up here because planes need to carry the least mass that they can. They have to be up there. Uh, so that is why they use you know, kerosene, essentially. However, in the middle here, you've got the alcohols uh, and very high alcohol blends. Surface transport could really live there pretty well. The energy storage is about half. Uh, you get about half the energy per unit volume in methanol as you do with gasoline. But if it's still cheap and you can fill up regularly, you probably would if you can still afford, if you can still afford a car in this instance. Uh, so you could live here with the alcohols. The important thing is, of course, really, that these are all liquids, and so they're easy to store. These, obviously, batteries and gases are much more difficult to store. So the electrification of road transport, state of the art, yes, I do know they've just changed the leaf. Uh, but nevertheless, the Nissan leaf, you can think of that as being a really good exemplar of an electric vehicle. Now, you can't get very good data in Europe because they won't release the energy utilization in Europe. Uh, but in the States, they have these miles per gallon equivalents, uh, which they base on the energy that's used by the vehicle. So the LEAF on US drive cycles does about 3.3 miles per kilowatt hour. And a US drive cycle is much more real world than the European one. So about 3.3, hold that in your mind as we go forwards. That is 107 miles range, which is much better, much closer to the reported real range than the NEDC, the European drive cycle, which actually says it has a range of 155 miles, and that's, that's not the case in the real world. 
The Model S, a absolutely fantastic bit of kit, I must say, really, really good. I've been a passenger on a relatively long journey in one, and it's a phenomenal bit of kit. But it's nowhere near as good as the Leaf in terms of its energy utilisation. Quite a lot worse, actually, 1.1, 1.2 kilometres per megajoule versus 1.5, so about 20% worse. Electrification, of course, offers the potential to eliminate CO2 emissions at the point of use, which is why the OEMs are interested in, uh, in this, because in the averaging, you put one zero into the average, it has a big effect in terms of, uh, in terms of, produce, in terms of bringing down the average of the fleet. Now, you can pick any number you like uh, in terms of uh, grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour of the grid. When I did this slide, I had a look on an app and it was 312 grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour for the grid. You multiply that by the energy utilisation, uh, that one there, and you get about 40 to 60 uh, grams of CO2 per kilometre, um, which is much less than a petrol car. I'm not saying it isn't. But you do have to take into account the transmission losses because when the grid report their CO2, it's of the electricity in the grid, not actually charging the car. And there's always losses charging the car. But nevertheless, uh, even with a relatively poor carbon intensity on the grid, the LEAF uh, electrification looks, looks to be a good thing. But, of course, the problem is that the LEAF is not cheap, and this is properly expensive. The whole Elon Musk uh, business case, if I, can, if I can grandify it with that term, because I'm not sure what the business case is, but it's based on building expensive cars and selling them to rich people. Um, also, they're very massive because of the batteries uh, in terms of... So this, you know, you think a normal Fiesta would be about 1,200 kilograms, and a normal executive, executive car is about 1,700 kilograms. And this is because of the extra mass of the batteries that these things have to carry. So electric motors are actually more expensive than internal combustion engines in terms of dollars per kilowatt hour. And they're not much more, but they are more. And they are made from uh, relatively rare materials. Uh, and so on a supply and demand curve, you don't expect that to get better with volume. But batteries are the big extra cost in electric vehicles. Currently, battery cost is about $1,000 to $1,200 per kilowatt hour. It's expected to drop nearer to, 20, uh, nearer to $400 per kilowatt hour by 2020. That's a figure from the Boston Consulting Group. And the best, the future best price of automotive batteries, talked up by the people who hope to sell them, uh, is projected to be $90 per kilowatt hour. But I couldn't tell you when that was going to be. It's going to be 2025, 2030. But this is what the OEMs think they might be able to get down to. For the LEAF, if it had a 200-mile range, it would require 60 kilowatt hours, usable kilowatt hours, because there's always some headroom of the battery capacity. But nevertheless, if I do the calculation just on, on usable battery capacity, therefore, in the future, the best battery costing gives you $5,400 for the battery. But that does not include the battery management system. It does not include the cooling system either. The equivalent current low-pressure fuel system, your tank in your car, is about $300. So, factor of 18 different for your energy storage system on board the car. That fact makes plug-in hybrids very attractive for the manufacturers. Now, they can have a much smaller battery size, say only 15 kilowatt hours, because they don't need to have much range. But the really neat thing about plug-in hybrids is when people bother to plug them in, is that more electricity is used more often because there's no range anxiety. People are quite prepared to run the battery out and then the motor fires, then the engine fires up.
But, of course, if you do this, you still need a predominantly fossil fuel for the combustion engine. So we would still need to decarbonise the fuel to achieve zero carbon transport. And, however you look at it, although I've been going on and on about cars, that does not solve the problem of haulage, shipping or aviation. <clears throat> so the high cost of EVs has meant that significant governmental support has had to be uh, applied to drive the technology. And I'll say again, the conventional car and internal combustion engine has never had any incentives applied to it. Instead, governments have taken massive amounts of taxation revenue out of the system over years. EV penetration struggles to achieve to exceed 1.5% of new, reg new registrations, and that's despite support in free road tax, free parking, no congestion charging, the OEM fines, etc. To me, that suggests that the real market is nowhere near willing to pay the extra for an EV, and actually that's in underscored by the government's continual rolling back of EV registration targets. So I dug out the data for... Uh, this is actually cars that qualify for the plug-in car grant. So this is not just electric vehicles. This is plug-in hybrids as well. So this has come from the SMMT uh, website. And this is monthly sales and then cumulative sales. The UK government has a target of 9% of all cars sold by 2020 should be EVs. Since revised this down to 3.7. So, what does this mean? We've always got some big spikes here. Core, this could be a lot. Well, actually, the actual percentage of sales of electric vehicles in the UK generally is going up a little bit 1.86. But that's only on the peaks. In the troughs, uh, it's nowhere near that high. So, as I say, it struggles to exceed 1.5% of sales. As of December 2017, there are about 130,700 EVs and plug-in hybrids registered. But the target was 300,000 by 2020. That requires a 50% increase in annual sales over the next three years in order to achieve that. And yet we're struggling to achieve 1.5% average this, uh, on a monthly basis. So the government occasionally looks at its own performance uh, and has some committees. And Mary Creer was quoted, admittedly, a year ago but I don't think she's changed her opinion. The government has already missed its target for electric vehicles. Our committee has no confidence it will meet its target for 2020 or 2030. Ministers have got to put proper policies in place instead of relying on magical thinking that it's all going to happen. And definitely the evidence does suggest that. On the other hand, this put me in mind of General Melchick from Blackadder, who quite wisely said about electric vehicles and the general policy, if nothing else works, a total pig-headed unwillingness to look facts in the face will see us through. <laughs> so what about hydrogen fuel cells? Well, fuel cells aren't a new technology. Um, William Grove invented the first in 1839. GM built the first vehicle, ironically called the Electrovan, in 1966. It would actually carry three people. But they still built it in 1966. Uh, good achievement. Interestingly, fuel cells and batteries significantly predate the internal combustion engine. So I always tell my students, if you want to study the most modern technology, you study internal combustion engines, because the other stuff's just too old. Primary automotive fuel cell technology is the proton exchange membrane, or PEM fuel cell, and it requires very high purity hydrogen to operate, very high purity hydrogen. And because they're low temperature devices, they need a lot of platinum. And that makes them expensive. Sounds familiar. But they do claim very high efficiencies. 
They emit no CO2 at the point of use, because obviously there's no carbon in a hydrogen molecule. And that's because they use the, hydrogen, the molecular hydrogen form. But hydrogen is the least dense of all elements, and there is no molecular hydrogen distribution system. At least we've got an electrical grid at the moment. You can say that for EVs. We do not have any kind of hydrogen distribution system. And the energetic losses in such a system would be enormous. So I talked about 700 bar storage pressure. That's storage pressure on board the vehicle. That is a gas under pressure. In order to get a gas under pressure to flow from one point to another, you need a higher pressure. So what they're talking about for the storage system is 850 bar. We have to pressurize the hydrogen to 850 bar in order to get it into the vehicle. In order to do that, that would be, require the energy equivalent to 20% of the energy contained in the hydrogen. So we have to find more nuclear power stations or more energy on the top in order to supply it to the car. Liquid hydrogen has been discounted because it would take even more energy. And it's made much worse by leakage or boil-off. Any boil-off with a liquid hydrogen system means you've just wasted all of the energy that you've put into putting it into the car. So we don't look at that anymore. In 2007, there was an estimate for a skeleton hydrogen infrastructure in the US, and that estimate was $1 trillion. That's 10 years ago. And that's just a skeleton system to cover the US. And part of this is the reason why previous CEO of Robert Bosch, and unfortunately I didn't note his name down, but I remember reading this, he said, hydrogen is a great fuel for the future, and it always will be. <laughs> they may have changed their mind now, but I do remember that. So what's the, best, what's the current state of the art? Well, the Toyota Mirai. The Mirai fuel cell vehicle has an EPA hydrogen consumption of 67 US miles per gallon equivalent. Again, looking at the US data, you calculate that out, and it comes to 0.89 kilometers per megajoule. That's nowhere near as good as the Nissan Leaf. It's about half as good as the Nissan Leaf. And presently, all, all the hydrogen is made from natural gas, essentially. And if you use the California Air Resource Board's carbon intensity figures, the Mirai, which most of these are in, are in California, the Mirai has CO2 emissions of 150 or nearly 160 grams per kilometer, which is far worse than the equivalent internal combustion engine vehicles. And it's also significantly heavier than an internal combustion engine vehicle. Just to bring it back to the amount of energy we'd need, if we were to supply the whole of the transport fleet for Europe, for, for, for Mirais, you would need 173 more one gigawatt nuclear reactors. That's double the present number, and we'd have to find 1.33 trillion pounds to pay for that. Now, you don't have to get it from there. You can get it from renewable energy, etc. But nevertheless, the point is these are enormous numbers if we go down this route. And this put me in mind of a quote by Frank Owner, who's the uh, chief designer at Bristol Aero Engines down the road. Uh, and uh, forgive me, this is an engineer's quote, but it, it makes me, the, the fuel cell thing puts me in mind of it. He was talking to uh, another senior colleague as they went to lunch one day, and he said, when we designed the Proteus, one of their engines, I decided that we should make the engine with the lowest fuel consumption in the world, regardless of its weight and bulk. So far, we have achieved the weight and bulk. <laughs> And that Bristol uh, interlude brings me on to the subject of how do you decarbonise aviation? Well, this is, a, this is a, a Boeing 787. The current Dash 9 has 50.7 tonnes of fuel on board for a 9,000 kilometre flight. That's 605,000 kilowatt hours of energy. Bringing it back to a proper unit, it's 
million megajoules that it has on board for that flight. Now, if we convert to electric propulsion, then I'll give them a factor of two to make it a bit, uh, a bit less horrible in terms of what I'm going to say in a minute. So if the engines are twice as efficient as combustion engines, very unlikely, but if they are, then we only need 302,500 kilowatt hours, which is just over uh, one terajoule. Um, <clears throat> uh, that is about the equivalent of 3,000 Tesla P100 batteries, which are 700 kilograms each. If you use the current best energy density for, ba for batteries on the cell level, so it doesn't include all the other stuff that you have to put in it, that gives a mass of a battery for this thing of so anywhere between 1,200 and 2,000 tonnes, equivalent to the 50 tonnes of fuel that it carries at the moment. Current fully laden weight, takeoff weight fully laden, including the 50.7 tonnes, is 253 tonnes. The battery itself will be five to eight times heavier than the aircraft. But that's not really the problem, because if you could only recharge it at 1.4 megawatts, it would take 21 point, uh, 216 hours or nine days to fully charge this thing. So if, I'd, if I could charge it at 14 megawatts, I had 10 of these things, uh, then it would only take me about a day to fully charge it. That's not how the airline industry works. Plainly, this isn't going to work. One more victory, one more such victory, and we are lost if we continue to go down this route. But carbon neutral aviation has actually been researched before. Hydrogen. Now, I said the rider about hydrogen was at an automotive scale. If I have to carry a hell of a lot of energy, hydrogen's pretty damn good because it has a very, very high, what we call a lower heating value, the amount of energy it stores per kilogram, just in its molecular form, if you like. And so if your tank winds up being a very small proportion of what you have to carry, it starts to become very, very attractive. And that's why space rockets use hydrogen, essentially, because they have to carry a lot of energy. So ammonia has also been looked at, and I'll come on to that in a minute, and hydrazine as well. That is a horrible molecule. Um, they've also been researched for aviation, as has uranium oxide. So this is a nuclear-powered turbojet that the US built when they were trying to um, solve the problem of how to keep the nuclear bombers in the air 24 hours a day. So they did actually build and operate nuclear-powered jet engines. Uh, and apparently, they operated one of the reactors over the eastern seaboard of the United States, which is, I don't think they get away with that now. All the aircrew that worked on the aircraft had to sign a disclaimer saying that they did not intend to have children anymore, which makes you think. Also, we've looked at hydrogen for rocket engines, and this is what's called a nuclear thermal rocket. So it uses nuclear heat to essentially superheat hydrogen and blast it out the back. It's not a combustion engine. Uh, the reason I put in th this in here is because, hey, it's nuclear. It's really good. Uh, but, um, spoiler alert, going to Mars, we are probably going to have to use engines like this to go to Mars. Uh, and that means someone somewhere has got to push a button with a space rocket on a uh, platform that has to carry a reactor into space. So that'll be interesting to watch. So what about carbon neutral ammonia? So this has come from a Rolls-Royce Heritage, Heritage Trust publication. And this concerns something called the Battlefield Compact Reactor. The US military have looked at this quite intensively because Fuel costs a lot of money to get into a theatre. It's about five to six hundred dollars a gallon to put uh, diesel into a theatre, a proper theatre of war, 
by the time everyone's touched it and you've got to defend it and everything else. So they looked at trying to make fuel on the battlefield using a nuclear reactor. Uh, and this is the energy flow, so you've got the compact nuclear reactor. And if you do the sums here, you find that 82% of this power goes to electrolysis. Spoiler alert. Electrolysis of water to get hydrogen is extremely energy intensive. And I'll come back to that later on. So if you, if you want the hydrogen economy, you actually there's nothing you can do about the amount of energy that you need. The other 18% was used to make ammonia from the hydrogen. If you do the energy calculation through this flow, it winds up being about 33% efficient in terms of the heating value, the energy content of the ammonia that you get out of the end. And both uh, General Motors uh, and, uh, and Allison made engines. So Allison made a, a helicopter engine that would run on ammonia. And General Motors made some reciprocating engines as well. So there's a big study done on this, this, this idea of uh, using nuclear energy to make uh, ammonia a poisonous gas, uh, and put it into uh, engines which are being fed with very uh, not very nice fuel. So you've got nuclear reactor, poisonous gas, probably not very reliable engines. The only thing you can ask yourself at that point is what could possibly go wrong. Um, <clears throat> so uh, an economic conclusion. The economic model for full electrification or a hydrogen economy is extremely challenging. And that's because both require massive infrastructure investment which cannot be offset by an immediate and high energy demand from affordable vehicles that can be released at the same time. So if you want to look for a chicken and egg problem, this is it. So I've spent a lot of time talking about what's wrong with all the other solutions. So I'm now going to propose my own, which I think is a pragmatic one. Before I do that, I'm going to quote Ernest Rutherford, who went for, uh, went for a trip to the States and he looked around all their fantastic laboratories that they got for physics, etc. Uh, and he came back and he assembled his team. He sat everybody down in full knowledge of what the budgets that he had and they had. And he said, gentlemen, we have run out of money. It's time to start thinking. So what's the actual problem? Let's do some thinking here. The real problem with transport is that we operate vehicles on fossil fuels. Economically affordable cars and the internal combustion engines do not have to operate on such fuels. The agony of all of this is that both diesel and fuel, uh, Ford made their first engines run on biofuels because we didn't have any fossil fuels at the time. We then made them run on fossil fuels to the extent now where everybody, the man in the street, thinks that's all they run on. They can't run on anything else. They have to use fossil fuels. It's not true. The engine does not know the origin of the molecules that are being put into it. There is no shortage of carbon-free energy. We just need to find a means to convert it to a form that's usable in existing vehicles. So we're going to get back to this idea of running engines on electricity. So just before I go anywhere else, I'm going to just point out that this is a heliostat. And I'll come back to that uh, in a little while. Available upstream energy. I like this chart. There are various different uh, forms of it done by various different oil companies. The red blob there is the average global energy uh, consumption by humans on a yearly basis. This is the amount of oil that Shell think we've got. This is the amount of coal that Shell think we've got. This is the amount of energy in uranium that Shell think we've got left, effectively. This one down here is the annual solar energy that strikes the Earth every year. So you compare that 
with a red one at the top. So we have no shortage of renewable energy. Obviously, hydro and wind uh, and photosynthesis are driven by the sun, so they're shown as subsets of this box. But they are annual energy stores, if you like. The average solar load in deserts is about 1,000 watts per meter squared, or I suppose over 24 hours it'll be about 500 watts per meter squared. So if you assume 20% solar panel efficiency, it would take 4,000 kilometers squared to power the European transport fleet, all of it. That has a demand of 400 gigawatts. This, this, is less than the size of Somerset and less than 0.1% of the area of the Sahara Desert. So if you went in there with enough solar cells or heliostats or whatever, and you had a means of actually coming up with a decent way of transporting the energy out, you could solve the problem with very little impact on, um, on land mass. But the problem is, as electricity or hydrogen, the energy cannot be easily transported away from the place where the renewable energy is the most abundant. So what would be an ideal scenario? So a kind of panacea would be where, one where the evolution of liquid fuels could be undertaken towards a zero carbon end game. And the fuels should be symbiotic with what we have for engines at the moment so that we can introduce them immediately. We don't have to wait for people to buy a more expensive, um, better uh, environmental car. If we do the right fuels, we can increase the energetic efficiency of the system as well. And that obviously has a big effect on the necessary upstream investment if we use less. But some other things we need to consider. The solution needs to be scalable to full amounts, up to what we use at the moment. And that's the problem with biofuels. We have a biomass limit. We can't get past it. You can't grow enough. Uh, but we need a solution that is scalable up to the full amount. We need to have something that can provide stability in the taxation system. This really gets the government's attention so that they don't have to keep, it, keep shelling out and that they can still make the same money from taxation. The technology level should really be similar to what we have now because we know we can make it economically. And if we also had the ability to unlock new and more abundant renewable energy supplies around the planet, that would be really beneficial. Another thing to throw in at this point is if you can actually make or gather the right kind of energy within your own economic boundaries, then you can have a huge, long-lasting impact on the, on, the, uh, on, the, um, on the state of the country's finances. At the moment, we chuck billions of pounds over the economic fence to the oil suppliers. 10% of that, if you could make it, if you get it with inside your own economy, it stays there year on year on year. So, there's a big economic argument in the long term that says if you could do this, why wouldn't you? And of course in the UK we have a lot of uh, potential wind power off in the Orkneys where you can't get it away as electricity because it's too far away. Uh, and also of course tidal power, etc. So this pragmatist answer, surprise, surprise, keep internal combustion engines and liquid-fueled fuel cells because they're, they're engines as well but adopt a sensible level of plug-in electric vehicle capability, so a PHEV. And that for reasons for that is for all-round sustainability and efficiency, because you can use the battery to smooth out the efficiency of the engine. Fuel those engines on carbon-neutral liquid fuels enabled by renewable alcohols, and I'll come on to why in a second. But these things are known as electrofuels or synthetic fuels as well. Hence, 
fueling an engine on electricity. I'll go back to this chart. So we've got liquids, we've got gases, uh, uh, sorry, we've got solids, we've got gases, we've got liquids. And down in the middle here, we've got the alcohols. They can be made from biomass, but as I said, we've got a biomass limit, and they can also be made as carbon-neutral liquid fuels. So, I guess some people probably don't agree with what I'm saying here, but I would just like to point out one thing in the spirit of equality. Uh, Mars and Toblerone have about the same lower heating value as the alcohols. It's about there. Um, so, in the future, when I'm totally wrong about all of this, and in five years' time we're all driving around in electric vehicles or hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, you still go into the fuel station and you think, I'm feeling quite hungry. I'll get myself a Mars bar. So you go and buy the Mars bar and you get back in your car, having just fueled it in no time at all, uh, and you throw the Mars bar in the passenger seat, I would still maintain that the Mars bar is a much better way of storing energy and board your vehicle than the hydrogen or the electricity, which it may well have. And the reason for that is it's about an or 20 orders of magnitude better in terms of its energy density than um, the things that are being talked about at the moment. So, as engineers, we can always bring things back to energy. Um, we don't necessarily think about calories, especially when I'm eating a Mars bar. So, chemically liquefied hydrogen. We need to put hydrogen in the fuel rather than use it as the fuel. So, this is a representation of three moles of hydrogen. This is a representation of one mole of CO2 and the volume that they occupy. If I combine the hydrogen with CO2 and I eliminate a molecule of water, um, but anyway, if I do that then I have a fantastic gearing in terms of the volume change. So this is making methanol from hydrogen and CO2. This is a liquid, and therefore very easily stored. Liquid at room temperature and pressure. In fact, it's the simplest liquid energy carrier at room temperature and pressure. But this is the thing that really makes me smile. There's 40% more hydrogen in a litre of methanol than there is in a litre of liquid hydrogen. And that is because of the effect of bonding it to a carbon atom and the effect that that has uh, on, on pulling everything together. So a liquid hydrogen has about the same density as styrofoam, sort of uh, coffee cup type of things. That's, that's the density of liquid hydrogen, 70 kilograms per cubic metre. If you do the sums, and this is rather, rather, rather convoluted, but the mass of hydrogen per cubic metre of the compound is given by these bars. So liquid hydrogen, about 70 uh, cubic metres. So 70 kilograms per cubic metre. If I look at methanol and, I've, and I calculate how much hydrogen is in it, I find I've, I've got about 100, kilograms, 100 sorry, kilograms of hydrogen per cubic metre in methanol. That's about 40% better than liquid hydrogen. And nearly all of the practical energy carriers have much more hydrogen in them. So if you can find this, if you use this as a way of liquefying hydrogen, uh, that's great. I've put water on the end. We can't use water as a fuel, obviously, but water's pretty good at storing hydrogen as well. But not as good as ammonia, interestingly. So how do we get to this? How do we solve the problem? So you can all go away and think the job's done. Well, uh, I suggest you use a sustainable methanol-based cycle. So. We put renewable carbon-free energy in. We electrolyze water to get the hydrogen. We synthesize methanol by using some CO2, and I'll come on to where that comes from in a second. We then put the stuff into cars or engines or whatever it might be and burn it. 
At that point, of course, we now release the CO2 into the atmosphere. Ah, bit of a problem there. So, how do we get around this? Well, we use direct air capture of CO2. And if this process is also driven by renewable energy, then the whole thing is carbon-free. Now, some people will be thinking, I've been reading too much science fiction with this. Direct air capture of CO2. It sounds impossible. I'll come back to that in a minute. But if you can do this, then onwards from methanol, you can synthesize gasoline, diesel, and kerosene as well. You lose some of the energy because it gets lost in the process as you change the molecules around. But nevertheless, you can have a liquid energy carrier that can go into whatever we have at the moment. And if you do this as well, there's another interesting, neat thing, I think. We also solve the problem of the petrochemical industry because they use oil as well. And if we can't use the oil, how do they get their feedstocks? Well, methanol you can make into plastics pretty readily. Um, it's actually used a lot by the petrochemical industry to do just that. One of the interesting things is if you make petrochemicals via this route from carbon dioxide that was in the atmosphere, so if I use it to make a visualizer like this or a laptop or something, I've effectively sequestrated some of the CO2 that was in the atmosphere. And that might allow you to justify burning some fossil fuels because you now have a seesaw that you control. But the interesting thing in this, if you can do it, and I'll come back to it in a minute, all the feedstocks are free. I'm not saying you haven't got to build the plants, but once you've built the plants, the feedstocks are free. So renewable energy, free once you've built the plant. Air, we've all got access to that. And indeed, the, the, the uh, distribution of CO2 in the atmosphere around the globe is essentially constant. Uh, water, slightly more problematic, but given you can build yourself a, a, a pipeline, then you should be able to get the water. Now, the price of all of those feedstocks is not under human control once you've built the plant. <clears throat> so you also then make a high-value product, and we know that it can go into a massive draw for the stuff. I think that's a pretty uh, attractive thing that needs to be looked at a bit more, because it provides the economic driver to decarbonize the fuel and a valuable buffer for renewable energy. Now, direct air capture of CO2. CO2 is being extracted from the atmosphere now in spacecraft. Okay? That is a closed atmosphere, but nevertheless, people are alive on board and they need so much oxygen, no more than so much CO2. And in submarines. And submarines are really a really interesting case. Because, so, if you do this, make methanol via this route, you can do it at a process efficiency of about 45% in terms of the energy that the methanol then carries. The biggest energy input, about 80%, is the electrolysis of water to get the hydrogen. I said that earlier on. The other 20% is the CO2 extraction and the overhead to make the hydrogen storable, make it liquid, essentially. The reason why I go on about submarines is that when you extract CO2 out of the atmosphere on a sub, a nuclear sub that stays, stays submerged for six months or so on end, you take the CO2 out of the air, you then have a gas, you put that to one side. People would still die because what you need to do is put some oxygen back in, obviously. So you electrolyze water not to get the hydrogen, but to get the oxygen on board a sub. And then you've got two problems. You've got CO2 and you've got hydrogen, and you cannot bubble them out. This is not meant to be bubbles. This is nuclear missiles. Um, sorry. Um, but you've got CO2 and you've got hydrogen, and every nuclear submarine combines the CO2 with hydrogen 
to make methanol. Why do they do that? They don't do it for fuel. They do it because methanol is a highly polar molecule. It is infinitely miscible in water. And they pump the methanol out so that you cannot see any bubbles coming from the submarine. We have done this for 60 or 70 years. And people's lives depend on it. Now, they don't have much shortage of budget in the military, and they don't have any shortage of power on a nuclear submarine. So the challenge for engineers is to make this economically viable and to make it energetically efficient. But this is the sort of CO2 extraction energy that we've demonstrated, uh, recent, uh, has been demonstrated at lab scale and larger. And we are a long way from, this is the thermodynamic minimum, 20 kilojoules per mole of CO2. We are not asking ourselves to work in a really, really difficult area in terms of what's possible. And importantly, what's necessary to do this doesn't require much in the way of, um, of uh, non-abundant materials, essentially. That comes back to the sustainability side of things. You can convert methanol into gasoline via a direct process, the MTG process. As I said, there's a reduction in fuel energy of about 8% point points. CO2, if you want to go direct to, um, to a hydrocarbon, you can use the Fischer-Tropsch process, which is well understood on, a, on an industrial level. Uh, and those pathways open up the possibility, obviously, of decarbonizing all forms of transport, including shipping and aviation, again, for which there is no practical alternative. So who's actually doing this? Well, the big, the big game, the big name was George Ola. George Ola book, wrote a book. He's a Nobel physicist. Oh, sorry, chemist. You wouldn't thank me for saying that. Unfortunately, he died last year. Uh, but his group at the University of Southern California wrote a book about this called The Methanol Economy. If anybody wants some bedtime reading, it's really good. Um, but they, looked, they are now looking at the direct conversion of atmospheric concentration CO2 to methanol. So you don't even need to extract the CO2 from the air. Uh, and they reckon they get about 79% conversion rate in a lab. I'll put that rider on it. Harvard University have something called the Bionic Leaf that does a similar thing. Berkeley, 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 uh, have a solar to fuel system that they're investigating. Oak Ridge National Labs have converted CO2 to methanol, uh, to ethanol rather, uh, which can go be blended into gasoline right now. And the EU, at long last, are funding a project called Sun to Liquid, which is aimed at making kerosene using a heliostat. They're going to feed it with CO2, so they're not extracting it from the atmosphere. But a big part of it is the synthesis of the molecules. But they put CO2 and water into the, the heliostat, which is that thing with all the mirrors that I showed you. And you use the focused um, solar rays uh, to provide massive temperature. And you do synthesis directly in the gas at the point. Because the EU have realized that this is the only way of decarbonizing aviation. We also have various companies. There's a company called Sunfire, another called Climeworks. They're building a full synthesis system in Norway to use the full thing, so direct air capture of CO2 in a commercial pilot plant. They're going to make 10,000 litres a year of what they call blue crude that can go into conventional petroleum refineries. And Sunfire and Climeworks have a relationship with Audi, so Audi are quite uh, active in this. And carbon engineering are working with a company called Greyrock, starting to make gasoline and diesel. I'm coming to the end soon. Um, so what might they look like? So these are some mock-ups by the Institution of Mechanical Engineers. Um, so, yeah, deserts, uh, aircraft, alongside the M1. Doesn't have to be there. Um, but anyway, they had an idea that they might put them um, wherever you like. So Climeworks, they're a spin-out of ETH Zurich. 
set itself the goal of capturing 1% of global CO2 emissions by 2025. That seems pretty ambitious. But it has a 50 tonne per annum direct air capture plant operating at the moment. It's building a 900 tonne per air commercial plant uh, to open actually this year, 2018. That is equivalent to the CO2 produced by 40 people or 150 cars over a year. The CO2 actually is currently being sold to food companies, uh, but the aim is to close the fuel cycle, and that's where Audi are interested in it. <clears throat> Carbon engineering. This is different technology developed by David Keith at Harvard. It's actually funded by Bill Gates, so no shortage of cash there, and this chap, Norman Murray Edwards, who's actually made all his money out of strip mining Canada for oil, oil, uh, oil sands. But anyway, he's obviously got some kind of conscience and he's pushing it back into renewable fuels. It's extracted one tonne of CO2 per day for over a year, and that's equivalent to about 16 people or 61 cars. Because they can't use it at all, they just release it back into the atmosphere. But he's got a plant that's nevertheless doing it. Um, working with grey rock, it's begun to synthesise a mixture of gasoline and diesel using only CO2 captured from the air. So, some concluding remarks at long last. But before I get any further, I'm going to quote John Maynard Keynes, the economist. Because I guess a lot of people really want to believe that the uh, EV and the hydrogen economy is going to happen. And I hope what I've done in the last, how long is it, hour and a bit, um, has shown you that that might not necessarily be the case when you look at things from an energetic and an economic point of view and all the challenges we have of changing the energy carrier. And with that in mind, he said, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? Are you open to the idea that this might be another practical way of doing things or not? So, the car in the internal combustion engine is a towering achievement of mechanical engineering. Woo. It has been a force for economic progress because of its cost to utility ratio. In the last hour or so, we have built over 10,800 cars, and if you put the value on those cars, equivalent to a low-range Ford Focus, the value of the cars we've built in the last hour is 173 million pounds. So that's the turnover that has effectively been created as a result. So it is a very big industry. Now, successful technological revolutions have significantly improved the cost to utility ratio. So we think about the value of a mobile versus a fixed phone, a computer versus paper, the internet versus libraries, the jet engine versus the piston engine for aviation. All of those things have made a jump in terms of cost to utility ratio. I'm very sorry, but the electric vehicle reverses the cost to utility proposition. But we have to change. However, I think there's a fundamental imbalance in responsibility for the CO2 that gets emitted, and that's not conducive to solving the problem. The current approach, electrification, is a significant risk to the economic model because the man in the street can't afford it. Oil companies lobby all, of the place, all over the place. If they lobbied against this, and I think they have, it, it could be very counterproductive to them. If it gives rise to mass electrification, their business will be significantly harmed. Better for them to support the manufacturers in continuing to use liquid fuels which they can supply in a decarbonised form and they can continue to profit from. I think we are actually standing looking at potentially a Kodak moment for the fuel companies. Audi other manufacturers, car manufacturers, are realising if you want to make more money from this, 
you get into the fuel and energy supply side of it. And they are getting into it for that reason. Uh, so, um, you know, Audi aren't really doing it out of the goodness of their hearts. The whole Volkswagen group is doing it. And they have been doing it for years before the emissions scandal, I would say. But we need life cycle analysis and a logical approach to taxing CO2 and energy. And we do not have that at the moment. But we could supply it if we taxed the energy and not the volume of the fuel. So you have a unit of energy, a megajoule, and then you have a multiplier put on that associated with the fossil CO2 footprint of supplying that unit of energy. You then have two levers that you can pull. If you make it really expensive for fossil, fossil fuel, you will drive the consumer to renewable fuel. You can make it really cheap. You use the fossil fuel to fund the renewable fuel. But importantly for, manu for, uh, for governments, two levers, different directions, you can still keep the same taxation. There you go. As such, electrofuels provide a path of least resistance for all the stakeholders. The governments, because there's lower immediate investment in renewable energy that they have to make. The fuel companies, there's no quantum change from a liquid fuel infrastructure. The vehicle manufacturers, since the technology is similar to what they make most of now. And the transport customers, who will still be able to afford motoring. And I'll say this again, we cannot lose sight of this. They provide all of the money into the system. Any technology which is not perceived as near cost equivalent by the general public, not the early adopters, will fail. And that has been shown by the EV experience in the marketplace to date. So with that, this is the last slide. A quote from the film Clockwise. I've been saying this stuff for over 10 years now. By and large, quite a significant chunk of it has come true and people are coming round to the idea of electrofuels because you can't decarbonise aviation any other way. Nevertheless, for all of this time, I've always held the view that it's not the despair, it's the hope I can't cope with. <laughs> oh, thank you.